Well, you can open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 11. Uh, we have two more Psalms to go. We've been making our way through the muck, living beyond the muck. And uh, after this series, I want us to do a series called How to Age Like a Fine Wine. And let me tell you why this is coming about for me personally. Um, I am about to turn 40 in the month of March, March, March. First service was like, I thought it was happening tomorrow. No, no, no. Okay. And some of you are like, okay, bro, <laughs> 40, why are you talking about aging like a fine wine? Well, listen, uh, number one, they say that the second half of life probably starts at about 35. Sorry. Um, secondly, Scripture says in Psalm 90, verse 11, Moses says to the Lord, teach me to number my days. Now, a part of that, obviously, is a recognition of mortality. And we, if we want to walk and step with God in light of that mortality, need to become students about life. And um, I'm still in all of my thunder here. But I believe that this culture kind of worships the first half of life and doesn't recognize that there's much to be gained in the second half of life. In fact, that perhaps could be like when you're really like starting to cook with gas and that kind of stuff. So you're going to hear a 40-year-old or almost 40-year-old thinking through, well, how do I do this next half of life well? And we'll probably get into Ecclesiastes and some other places uh, to, to unpack that together. So, Psalm 11 this morning. Think about the last time you received some advice. Uh, we live in a world that is full of advice. Sometimes you go and you ask for advice. Sometimes people offer you advice and you didn't ask for it. Let me ask you, as you think through advice and receiving it, how do you know the difference between good advice and bad advice? I am a reader. I enjoy going into the books. Uh, I really haven't read much fiction as of lately. I tend to focus on wisdom. I want to kind of think about, well, how do I live life well? How do I do this well? And I've got to tell you, there's a principle that I've adopted as I read because you know, not everything is good advice out there. And the principle's kind of yucky, but it's pretty helpful when you think about it. It's eat the fish and spit the bones. Why do you need to do that? Well, because in the same book, you can read some really poignant, insightful advice, and then you can also say, oh, I'd never do that. It's not great advice. You know, the same can be said not just with books, but with people in our lives that we're interacting with. Interestingly enough, in Psalm 11, David is going through this exercise of trying to figure out, well, how do I deal with counsel that a good friend has given me that's not good counsel? Now, that's hard. Why? Because they're your friend. You love them. They love you. Think about how the counsel is packaged as it's presented to you. I care about you. I'm concerned for you. It sounds so plausible. H.L. Ellison said this about friends. He said, the love of your friends will often create your most subtle temptations. 
Well, David recognizes this. The advice that he receives from the friend stirs something deep in his spirit. So let's read it. The first three verses. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Remember, David in the Old Testament is Israel's greatest king. And as we're making our way through the Psalms, there's often times that we can correlate a Psalm with a period in David's life. However, if we're not given any details about when, then we're left speculating about when. So we don't really know when this took place in David's life. But here's what we do have. We have his reaction And we have the counsel that was given to him, and we can follow the logic of the counsel. So let's do that. Let's start off with the outlook of the counsel that's given to him. I want to suggest that the outlook is extremely pessimistic. This idea of foundations, you'll see there in verse 3, is a metaphor for the order of society. Uh, If you're going to look at it in another translation, maybe this one would help. This is today's English version. It says, there is nothing a good man can do when everything falls apart. Oh boy, that sounds really bad. Everything's falling apart. I mean, you can easily see how things in the world can look bad and get extremely pessimistic. We've seen extreme pessimism in our own time. Let me ask you a question, if you're old enough to remember. Where were you the night that Y2K was supposed to take place? I remember where I was. I'm dating myself here. But I was with a group of my high school friends, and we were ready to welcome in the apocalypse of I2K as we uh, counted down the new year. Now, if you're not old enough to remember that, Y2K was the year 2000 bug, and something to do with the change of dates from this millennium to that millennium was going to cause all of the computer systems to crash epically. So think about that. Power grids going out, supply chains breaking down, people are going to grocery stores, they're getting water, they're getting supplies, they're freaking out. On the extreme end of the spectrum, people are believing that the nuclear missiles are going to launch because the computers are going to just let them go. Well, we're looking at it as high schoolers and we're like, this kind of sounds cool, you know, like there's going to be no school if all the power goes out. Let's count it in. What happened? (laughs) A big nothing burger. No, we all have friends, I think, in our world that we can look at and say, Yeah, they're kind of a glass-half-empty kind of person. You can live with the reality that perhaps someone has a gloomy outlook, but David can't live with the recommendation that the friend makes in light of that gloomy outlook. If you look at verse 1, you see why he reacts. He says, "'In the Lord I take refuge.'" How can you say to my soul, 
Flee like a bird to your mountain. If you've been following along with the Psalms, we talked about this idea of speaking to someone's soul in Psalm 3. In the Hebrew, the soul is the nefesh, and that's speaking into the inner core of a person, the place where their desires lie, their needs. And when you think about it then, when you're offering counsel to another person, advice, we kind of say it flippantly today, well, this is just my opinion. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. You are seeking to influence a person right at their very core. And here's what bad advice can do. Bad advice, bad counsel can chip away at the foundation of a person's hope and confidence in the Lord. Now, in David's situation, let's speculate a little bit. Maybe this is taking place when he is running from Saul. Maybe this friend is saying, you've got to get as far away from Israel as you possibly can, or else you are going to be a dead dog. Now, what happened in his life prior to that? Well, Samuel comes. He anoints him with oil. He says to him, you're the next king of Israel. So if David runs, he's running away from the call of God on his life. You look at Jesus' life, and there's a similar dynamic. It takes place a couple of times. I think first of Luke chapter 13. Jesus is approached by some of the Pharisees, and they have some highly pessimistic news for him. Get away from here. For Herod wants to kill you. Now, Jesus is the Son of God. He can perfectly see through the noise, and he knows that this advice does not have the Spirit of God behind it. So listen to how he replies to them. It's strong. You go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. In other words, ain't going to run because I know that God has a plan and purpose for my life. Running, fear can cause us to turn away from that. Probably the most difficult advice that Peter, uh, Jesus had to navigate came from his inner circle, came from Peter. You might remember in Matthew chapter 16, who do people say that I am? And Peter's the gold star student. He stands up and he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus, after hearing the right answer, says, now let me tell you a little more about what that means. They're going to take the son of man and kill him and do what they want with him. And on the third day, he rises again from the dead. Now, Peter can't see how that could be good for Jesus or for him or for anyone else. So he says, far be that from you, Lord, should that happen to you. And what does Jesus say in response to him? Get behind me, Satan. I like what Davis says. He says, the most religious, well-intentioned counsel may lead to living via unbelief. You have to be careful. You have to sift through things. And you and I, in our lives, as we navigate this mucky world, will hit similar moments. You will hit crisis. It comes to all of us. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you have. 
Crisis comes. And you have two choices before you, like we see here in Psalm 11. You can either escape or you can refuge. And let me just say this, escape feels intoxicating when you're in crisis. And it comes in various forms. Some of us think that a physical relocation will make life better. I can move away from my problems, but the problem with that thought process is problems tend to follow you. It could be an emotional response. You can get cynical towards the world and towards God's purposes in the world. You can say, it's so bad out there, I don't believe God can even fix what's going on out here. I'm not confident these people would ever care to know more about God. That's escaping within yourself. That's going in your shell. The other way you can do it is nostalgia. Oh boy, 40 years ago. The world was so much better. One pastor calls that the photoshopped version of the past. We have a way of airbrushing it and making it look beautiful. Let's just go back 40 years and think through some of the things that happened. Well, we don't have time for that today, but it wasn't all pretty. So, as you think about these things, there are so many ways you can run from your problems. Remember this truth. Escape always comes at the expense of gospel impact. David runs. He runs away from being king. Jesus runs. He runs away from being savior. How might running derail your gospel impact? And what should you do then when you feel like running? You see, that's the heart of the matter. In this world, we're always going to have a choice between faith and fear. Fear is a primal instinct, and it compels you to run. Faith, on the other hand, is a supernatural instinct, and it compels you to step into whatever God's calling you to do in this world. Uh, fear focuses exclusively upon the destroyed foundations. It's overwhelmingly fixated on the problems. Faith looks at the one who is the foundation. Uh, Moses describes God as the foundation in Psalm chapter 90. Lord, you have been a dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth in the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. How do you remain on track when all of the conventional wisdom, even those that know you and care about you, are telling you that running is your best and only option? And David's answer, and as I think we're going to see uh, conclude, because we've been walking through these psalms, the regular answer that the psalm gives us is you must capture a vision for the living God. You see, a vision for God is how you transform fear into faith. God uses it all the time in the life of the believer. In fact, let's think about how we can apply this as we move forward. I have three simple recommendations from this text on how you can see 
fear transform to faith? The first thing you've got to do is you've got to stop perseverating. You know what that means? Nope, don't have a clue what that means. It, it was one of those words that I heard and I was like, got to throw it in there. Perseverating means that you are like fixating on something. You're running it through your mind in a loop fashion or you're talking about it with the person that you verbally process with. And here's the deal about perseverating. It never gives you psychological relief. It actually makes you more anxious more fearful, more panicked. And until you stop doing that, you're not going to be able to get on to number two and three. So here's number two. You need to deepen your understanding of God's character in nature. How can David see that this advice is not good for him? He knows God. He knows what God's like. He can say, this is not what God would have me do. In fact, as you look at the remainder of the psalm, it's a reflection from David about God, his character and nature. Let's listen to it. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So let's analyze his description of God. How do I stay sane in the midst of turmoil? And David is showing us here that you actually have to replace images if you're going to do this. Notice that we're given certain images in the fearful advice, and then David replaces those images with images of God. Let's observe the first one. Uh, David replaces the fearful image of instability. That's the foundations being destroyed. That's unstable with the peaceful image of God ruling in heaven. You need to meditate on that image. As you're feeling panicked in this world, going back to the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Think about how differently God must see your problems and my problems. Do you think there's anything that has ever happened in your life that has sent God into DEFCON 5? No. Think about the image. He stays seated on the throne. Now, we are different. We go into DEFCON 5. I think of this image of children when they scrape their knee. You ever have one of your kids when they were little scrape their knee for the first time and see the sight of blood? Uh, my kids, when they were a little younger, three of them would be congregated together, and one of them would scrape their knee, and they would just come running into the house full of hysteria, and they run right past dad because they don't expect him to be able to do anything about it. And they go over to mom, and they're like, Mommy, is he going to be okay? 
Mommy, are we going to have to go to the emergency room? Is he going to live? I mean, it gets like really intense really quick. And mommy looks down. It's just like seeing like a little trickle of blood down a knee. But she's mom. She knows what to say. Oh, I'm so sorry, honey, that you scraped your knee. Let's go get some Neosporin and a Band-Aid. I love that image because you have this mixture of care and compassion. And guess what? God cares about you. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. But at the same time, he's totally unmoved by the problem in this sense He doesn't feel like he needs to panic because he knows just how to manage it. And he knows you'll be okay. And he knows he can get you through it. Let's look at another image replacement here. David replaces the fearful image of evil winning with the satisfying image of God dispensing justice. Look again at verse 2 in that advice. The fearful friend says, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted the arrow to the string to shoot in the dark. Now, arrows in the dark are fearful. Why? Because you can't see them coming. They'll come out of nowhere. As you listen to the friend talking about the problem, do you hear any mention made of God? Are they thinking about God? Are they saying, David, go and pray about this first before you make a decision? No. There's no mention of God. And let me say this. If you're living life like God doesn't exist, you have every reason to bite your nails because the world is scary. There are scary things that happen. And if there's not one who is sovereignly ruling over and above those things, oh boy, watch out. But here's a thought. David knows two things about God. He knows that God's an examiner and he knows God's a judge. As an examiner, God sees the human heart. He knows the thoughts and intentions of every single person. And as judge, he'll respond to that knowledge with justice. Now, you may have paused as you looked at verses 5 and 6 in the text Uh, Verse 5 says this, and it sounds strong. God's soul hates the wicked. Then look at verse 6. It gets more intense. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, I want to help you as a church become wise navigators of Scripture. It's important to know how to navigate the Bible. The easier portions, the more difficult portions. Now, when we say difficult about a portion of Scripture, it's not because it's embarrassing to God that it's there, but it's because it's harder for us to digest it. So let me give you a thought as you navigate passages like this. Here's something you need to know about God. God is not flat, even though we attempt to flatten him out. Okay, I'm going to say that again. God is not flat, even though we attempt to flatten him out. Now, 
What do I mean when I say that? Well, we have this way of reducing God down to one single emotion, and that emotion is love. It's almost as if that's the only thing that God feels, and and the only way that he can respond to a situation is love. But here's the deal. When you do that to God, you flatten him out. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis kind of adds some flair to this thought. He says this, that the God of the Bible is not a formless blob of celestial protoplasm, not some sort of cosmic jello with a sickly smile. And what he's saying there is when you flatten God out, it kind of becomes weird looking, right? Amorphous. God's not flat. God's round. He has many emotions. He responds to things with that variety of emotions. And in his roundness, God hates evil. Hates it. I have to say, uh, Jen and Marcy, I'm sure as they go into this area of human trafficking more and more, and as they see things and as they're exposed to things, they're going to develop a very round perspective. They're going to hate some of the things that they see. Well, guess what? Here's the deal with God. Perfectly round. There's no flaw in his roundness. So he hates evil infinitely more. He's not the friend of a perpetrator. Unless a person turn and repent from their evil ways and accept and embrace the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, they can't be a friend of God. He's round. And we need to accept him as that. Now, the problem is you're going to develop a flat view of God if you don't know Scripture well. And we live in a current moment where there is more and more biblical illiteracy, more and more lack of understanding of theology. If you don't know like the complete picture of scripture, it's very hard to come into moments like crisis and to really lean into God well. Why is that? Well, it's because you just don't know enough about him to do that. I think of biblical knowledge and truth kind of like homeowner's insurance in some ways. Having that homeowner's insurance is there because guess what? Tragedy strikes. I need somewhere to go when tragedy strikes. And if I know God well, I can lean into him. But people don't know him well. There was an episode of Jeopardy. Claire actually sent me a, a little text with it. And the contestants are, I think they're like in the final round or they're, they're somewhere significant. And they don't know anything about the Lord's prayer. They don't know like what the meaning of the word hallowed is. So they like epically fail. And here you have these individuals that have a well-rounded education. They know a lot about, you know, life and uh, topics and studies and that kind of stuff, but they don't know that. Uh, I think of it like, you know, with children, for example, you've got to expose them to the Christian worldview at a young age. Imagine a kid going through algebra class, and it's 12 uh, classes to get to the test, to take the final exam. What if a kid shows up to two of the 12 classes? Do they know algebra? No. How do we form a Christian worldview? 
I think there are two significant things you can do proactively in your life. Number one, you've got to read the Bible for itself. I love devotionals. I think they are so helpful. But if you've never read the complete picture of the Bible, meaning cover to cover, all the way through, you're going to develop a fragmented understanding of the Bible, not an integrated understanding of the Bible. It's so important to do that. Secondly, you've got to sit under good preaching. Now, what do I mean when I talk about good preaching? I think today that the evaluation for that is, you know, I laughed a lot during the sermon, I was moved in my emotions, and the preacher said things that confirmed my biases. But here's the truth. You're not always going to want to hear everything that the Bible has to say. (laughs) I want to hear everything the Bible has to say to you, (laughs) but I don't always want to hear everything the Bible has to say to me. Steps on my toes. And as a preacher, I'm committed to walking through portions of Scripture as the main staple of the diet of the church. Why? Because then I have to deal with the hard things. I can't avoid it. And that forms a well-rounded view. Let's move into the third application. Know the goal. Know the goal. David's friend didn't know the goal. You could actually read Psalm 11 and walk away and miss the goal. The goal of the friend was safety. You could walk away in verse one and say, the Lord is my refuge. Therefore, the goal is God keeping me safe. Is your safety the all-important issue in life? Well, it must not be. Why? Because God lets you go through hard times. Why does God let you go through hard times? Because he's got something more important for you than just simply your safety. When safety becomes the end-all, be-all, safety can become an idol. What is an idol? It's expecting something from things, objects, whatever, that only God can do. And your sense of safety cannot do for you what God can do for you. He's a person. He's the one who's able to care for you. You have to lean into him by faith. So the goal, according to Psalm 11, is God himself. It's knowing him. It's entrusting your life to his care and control. Look at verse 7. This is where we see the goal. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So it's the seeing God, it's the presence of God here. Now, that word upright, what does that mean? How do I know if I'm an upright person? Well, the image the scripture gives us through upright is this idea of straightness as opposed to something being crooked. So if you have a builder building a deck for your house, you want them to use upright boards, right? Not crooked boards. The same thing's true of God as he's building his kingdom He wants to use upright people. Now, we don't come to him upright. He does that work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Upright means that you know God, you love God, and you love to do God's will for your life. Upright. 
That's the hope, is the upright prize God above everything else. That's the hope of heaven. That's the joy of the Christian life. That's what it's all about. This summer, I uh, had the joy of officiating three weddings in approximately three weeks. I got to tell you, the, the picture of the wedding makes me think of what we're talking about right now. Uh, weddings today are fun. Uh, you almost don't know what you're getting into. I mean, one of the weddings that I officiated, the, the couple like kicked off their shoes in the middle of the wedding and they were standing up there barefoot. And I say, okay, well, here we go. This is that kind of wedding. I get it. But with all of the variance and difference, there is a moment that is always the same in every single wedding that I've been a part of. And it is the moment of the bridal march. Right? What happens before that moment? Well, there's a lot of perseverating. <laughs> the flower is going to be perfect. Uh, do we have all the, the guests on the guest list? Are we not offending anyone right now at our wedding? Where's the rings? I mean, I'm telling you, over the course of 13 or so years of officiating weddings, I've seen a lot of things. But the bridal march is always the same because it's in this moment that the bride and the groom connect eyeballs and all those things go out the window. Who cares about the flowers? I get to marry him or I get to marry her. Now, my joy as the pastor is I stand up in the front of the church. I get the, the view of the aisle. I get to look over at the groom. I love when I'm standing up there looking at the groom and thinking, is that guy a crier? Because I got to tell you, there are a lot of criers. <laughs> and some of them are like so tough and burly and you're not expecting tears and they're like the worst. And the bride, from my perspective, she comes into the room down that sinnel aisle. She looks beautiful, radiant, and she's connecting with the groom. She's not looking at anybody else. And I read their thoughts. You know what they're thinking? I get to live with him or her for the rest of my life. I'll give it six weeks and maybe that'll change. <laughs> but that's what they're thinking. Now, the goal of heaven is the dynamic that we're talking about there. The goal of a wedding is not all of the trapping. It's not getting everything right. It is the fellowship between a husband and a wife. And in heaven, you come to the realization that I live, get to live with the God who has always known me and loved me for eternity. Okay, we're not there yet. We haven't seen Jesus face to face. We're still imperfect. How do I get there well? Psalm 11, you have to learn how to sift through the noise. How do you know advice is spiritually discerned? How do you know that it's good for your soul? And do you have a vision of God? Do you really know him and know him well? Do you know the goal? That the upright will see him face to face. Let's pray on that. Lord, as we look at 
the scriptures this morning, of course, I hope that we're left in a place where our hearts are longing for heaven, where we're longing for the goal. Ultimately, we do not walk with Jesus because we want something from Jesus. We walk with Jesus because we want Jesus. You are a perfect God, a holy God, a loving God. And it's your presence that brings real life and satisfaction and joy in this world. David knew that presence. We want to know your presence so that we can decipher between the good and the bad advice, but, but more importantly than that, so that we can live beyond the muck, that we can live a deeply satisfying, joy-filled life in our time now. Help us to do that. Help us to keep our eyes focused forward and to live in that direction. We pray this in Jesus' name.